This is the Difference Makers Podcast with your host, Adam Van Bremer. On our latest episode, Union Mission Executive Director Patricia Youngquist talks about her background as an accountant and a Methodist minister, how about that for a combination, and how her experiences prepared her to head Savannah's leading homeless assistance organization. The Difference Makers Podcast is brought to you by another group making a major difference in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. You know their names. You know the organizations and businesses they lead. You might even know their faces. But do you know what makes them Difference Makers? This is Difference Makers, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority and dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions in our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. And I thank you for listening. Homelessness is a delicate subject here in Savannah. More than 4,000 of our neighbors are without a roof over their heads. They live on friends and relatives' couches, in shelters, or on the streets, or in camps. The situation frustrates the residents in this community, and most feel powerless to change it. Union Mission is one organization tackling homelessness and transforming lives. The nonprofit dates to 1936 and offers housing and supportive services. Patricia Youngquist leads the Union Mission, and she, her staff, and the organization's supporters are difference makers in our community. Joining me for Difference Makers today is Pat Youngquist with Union Mission. We're going to talk a lot about what Union Mission is and what Union Mission does, but as is our trend or our, our the way we do things here on Difference Makers, we're going to talk, we're going to get to know Pat a little bit better first. And Pat, you were kind enough to spend some time and, and share a little bit of information before we went on the air here, but let's start at the beginning. I understand that you're a Southside Chicago girl? I am. I was born and raised on the South Side of Chicago. It was um, a great place to grow up because as a child, I didn't mind winter, so I don't like it now, I'll but like it, it, now. <laughs> it was fun when I was a kid, so I didn't mind, and um, I was fortunate enough to have parents who took advantage of the many great aspects of Chicago, like sports, baseball, and museums, and um, uh, my girlfriend and I used to go down to the Museum of Science and Industry, if you've ever been there, and mm-hmm. we would plot how do we could spend the night in there. So yeah. this was before a night, night at the at museum. museum. Yeah. yeah, we already had that figured out. So it was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, I went uh, a year to the University of Illinois, but then went to school in, uh, in, at Franklin University in Columbus, Ohio. Right. So right. became a Buckeye right. fan. Right. Well, we'll come back to that because we have that in common. And Zach is over there shaking his head as a University of Tennessee <laughs> Rocky topper. But Chicago, you're on the south side of Chicago, which means the White Sox. Correct. Not the Cubs. No, although we did go to Cub games. We went to a lot of baseball, but we were definitely White Sox fans as being the Southsiders. Yeah, and Comiskey is, at least the one you grew up with, is gone. Right. Wrigley is still there. With lights. <laughs> do you do you, do you like going to Wrigley or not? I do. Um, I have been there. Rec- the most recent has been to the new White Sox Park. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems like people, like when I brought visitors to Chicago, they, they always want to go to see the Cubs. Right. So I've kind of resigned myself. And it is a lovely park, I yes, have to it say. Is. It, it is, is a lovely park. It's very charming. Yeah. Very charming. So south side of Chicago, very uh, 
you think of South Side of Chicago, you think of the White Sox. You also think of very working class, very blue collar. What was the neighborhood like? What was the what was yeah, I grew up on the far south side and towards um, about a couple miles uh, west of Indiana border okay. near Hammond. Um, <clears throat> it was uh, back then there was a lot of steel produced in that part of Chicago, so it was a steel mill town. We'd see the pink skies at night, mm-hmm. um, but it was you know we grew up in a little townhouse. So it was just a little blue collar neighborhood, and um, it was a great place to grow up. Um, but the neighborhoods changed while I was in high school, yeah. and so I ended up being in a very diverse um, high school, and um, which was really a good experience. Recently went to a high school reunion. We all reflected on that. Um, our, our graduating class of about 500 was probably a third um, white, which was Jewish and Slavic, actually, mm-hmm. um, Serbian, mm-hmm. um, a third Hispanic, mostly Mexican, and mm-hmm. a third African-American. But our reunion, all three groups were represented, and it, it, it really was back then uh, a little unusual mm-hmm. and uh, a great way to grow up. Let's stay there for a second. So we're talking about the 1960s, and, right. and obviously here in Savannah and in the South, desegregation not go exactly smoothly and quite frankly it didn't go exactly smoothly in the north either right but from what you've heard in your time here can you compare and contrast it to what it was like going through that i guess it would not be officially desegregation but the whole uh diversification of the the masses that went on in the 60s and where you grew up well you know i it's somewhat a myth that a place like Chicago was as desegregated as it was because I certainly remember um, Ashland Avenue. If anyone that would know Chicago, it would be it was clear one side of the street was white, mm-hmm. going then to the west, and the other side was African American, and it was just that's the way it was. Um, so neighborhoods like mine, where we experienced the white flight, of course, um, m- most of the people that. You know, my contemporaries moved out to the suburbs. As a matter of fact, there was 163 kids that graduated eighth grade with me, and only 20 made it through high school. Is that right? So four years later, only only 20 of us remained. Wow. That's how fast. How so we lost all of our childhood friends. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some kids ended up figuring out how to kind of commute back, but that was just a few. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, there was a lot of change. And, of course, you know, you said the 60s. I actually graduated in 72. Mm-hmm. So I was in high school from 68 to 72. Mm-hmm. A lot going on in this country oh, yeah. then. 1968 mm-hmm. was the Democratic National Convention in Chicago where we had right. all the riots. Right. Not far from where I lived were the riots when um, Dr. Martin Luther King was killed. Mm-hmm. So now you asked me to contrast to here. I can't say I know that much about it i mm-hmm. i do think again it was sort of again in chicago we would say we were desegregated but there was a lot more segregation than right right but there wasn't a huge think. civil rights movement with like here we had ww law and other pioneers that really were on the forefront and, and marching and doing that thing in the north and in the cities in particular it was for lack of a better word a little more subtle yes i would i would say that's true okay so having that background and then going on to college and into a professional career, how did those years kind of help form your persona and the way you related to people going forward? 
one thing, actually, that my first five years, we were in a community near the University of Chicago mm-hmm. called Hyde Park, and mm-hmm. it's always been a diverse community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was, you know, I was raised by parents who always told us to be open-minded and about people and that we really were all created the same. We're all right. human beings. Then experience one day, experienced it both in my neighborhood and in my high school and all that. I mean, I, I think I just took that with me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I tell younger people now, you know, whether we, we whether we like it or not, our parents have a lot more influence on us than we realize. Of course they do, yeah. <laughs> and my mother always was telling us, she was very generous, and she was always mm-hmm. telling us to make room for others, to be kind to others, to help others. So I think that just is something that I always carried with me. You know, she did a lot of volunteering, and that's just what we did. I yeah. mean, so... Um, so although I ended up the first part of my career, you know, well, the first number of years of my career, I was in the for-profit world. Right. I guess it's not surprising that I ended up in the nonprofit world. Right. <laughs> in the for-profit world, you were an accountant. I was. I have an accounting degree and, um, and, then, and then later got an MBA and I worked in the automotive business mm-hmm. and I got my, um, I worked my way through college. Um, and ended up right before I graduated getting a job in an automotive parts company. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up doing well there and being promoted to being a division controller when I was in my late 20s over eight warehouses and 90 retail outlets. So had a lot of responsibility. Um, but again, I mean, here I was in the late 70s into the 80s as a woman in the automotive business. Um, there weren't many of us around. Um, when I got my one of my promotions, I even had a guy call me from another, like a sister subsidiary, saying, I just want to talk to the woman that got this job because I can't believe we actually have a woman doing this. It was like, you know, a lot of things were said then that right. wouldn't be said today. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and he was just speaking as a colleague anyway. I mean, it was a yeah. congratulatory thing, but it, yeah. it, it was tough. I had to right. develop pretty thick skin. Right. Um, which I guess I did. <laughs> I was say, we, we were talking earlier, and you said you're, you were a supervisor as a teenager. Yes. In a furniture store, right? So. Yes. There was a large retail furniture store in Chicago called John M. Smith. And um, so um, I guess I've always been a little hyper-responsible. And um, I ended up being like the night and weekend supervisor of, of even of college girls when I was 17 huh. in high school just because yeah. uh, they knew they could count on me to get the job done. Right. So um, that's that's what I did. Yeah. So kind of looking back on it, um, it's, I don't know, it's kind of, my mother always, she really didn't want me to go to work that young. She said, when you're older, you're going to be tired. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she was that's right. That's true some days, right? That's <laughs> she true was some right. Days, right? So chronic overachiever, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and, but, it, uh, but eventually the chronic overachiever burns out. Right. When did that happen for you, and where did you go from there? Well, I, I, like I was saying, the automotive business was tough, and um, just as a part of my spiritual journey, um, I had not been in church in about 20 years. Um, my parents divorced when I was 13, and we, we left the Catholic Church at that time. So um, I ended up, after a successful business career but some personal challenges, decided to head down more of a spiritual path, maybe go back to church. A lot of things didn't work. I thought maybe God might work. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I ended up going into a, a, a church in Jacksonville, and because I was an accountant, they made me the treasurer. 
and um, actually just started doing a lot of volunteer work there and found it very, very rewarding and then realized I wanted to make it. tell the church if you're... Yeah, <laughs> financial background or public relations background—that's that's a kiss of death. Yeah. Just tell them you work at the coffee shop, and well, then they'll make you do the coffee and the donuts. So well, it was—I mean, it was funny. I really didn't mind, even though I was doing—I didn't mind doing volunteer work, which probably now I probably would prefer to do some other type of work. But at the time, it was—it was good. It was just very—it was very rewarding, and the and it was appreciated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I helped them uh, kind of get some financial statements and figure out where they're at and you know it 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 was very helpful so i um i I guess at that point in my life um well i finished up my mba this was at university of north florida in jacksonville and i decided to um head down a different path into the nonprofit sector Mm -hmm. you also stayed involved with the church yes yes so i i at the time i thought i might end up being an executive director of a nonprofit, which obviously did happen eventually. eventually. <laughs> but I ended up doing most of my nonprofit work within um, the United Methodist Church. You went to seminary? I did. So as I, st- I started working for the church um, after I got my MBA, and kind of through that journey, I was um, working in an office in Jacksonville, an administrative office that also needed a lot of, they weren't on computer, and this was already in the 90s. I mean, they needed a lot of help. So I got them all kind of set up, figuring out where their money was kind of at, and sensed a, a, a real I guess what I would call a calling. I had, I had a calling to serve in, um, t- to take my administrative and financial skills, experience, education, and to serve the church. So I made the decision to go to seminary Mm -hmm. and ended up becoming um, ordained in the United Methodist Church, Mm -hmm. which took about nine years, actually, through all the education and interviews and paper writing. I think a lot of people don't realize that that's what a lot of ordained ministers do i think most people think oh well if you're gonna go become a pastor or priest or whatever it means that you're gonna go to a church and you're gonna work on sundays you're gonna deliver the sermon or the homily and you're gonna go to the hospital and visit the sick and do x y and z but they don't see a lot of these other things that go on behind the scenes all the administrative work what where does that all tie together in in not only in the methodist church but probably in in all denominations well you know one of the things and I used to talk about this a lot in seminary. I would have people agree with me, but <clears throat> they never could figure out where to fit it in the curriculum. When a pastor or a priest goes to a congregation, they are running a small business. Absolutely. They have to deal with building issues. They have to deal with insurance. They probably have at least one staff, if yeah, not personnel. more. So yeah. they have personnel issues. And this is what I saw when I first went to the church <clears throat> back when I was in Jacksonville. I mean, he, here these pastors are asked to run a small business and they have no experience in this either they're fresh up you know they go straight from college right into seminary or maybe you know they've been in some other type of career that is non-business related you know they could be a social worker or or a nurse or any uh, you know any kind of career and they're ill-prepared and so I really sensed this need that I could help with which help fulfill the need which would be to take again my my background and apply it to the church 
um, help pastors. Actually, my first job when I was in Jacksonville, I helped a lot of the pastors that weren't equipped to do the statistical reports they had to do. And just the whole the whole financial thing was just, for many of them, it was not their thing. Yeah. And again, they had property issues and insurance and all the things that are the business aspects of the church. And all the things that can ultimately really sideline you if you don't have it all right. in order. Right. And I guess they felt ill-equipped sometimes, maybe got bad information from Mm -hmm. well-meaning or not well-meaning lay people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so it could be, um, there there is that need, and and not only in the church, but in nonprofits as well. Same thing where um, someone has a great idea for some sort of agency, it's a social worker that sees a need in the community, but they're not quite equipped to run the business side of their program, understanding the financial aspects, what they need to do. Mm-hmm. So it really takes both. Mm-hmm. You've established your, your reputation. You've found your niche in that organization. How do you go from there to Union Mission? I worked for the United Methodist Church in a number of roles. I was a CFO at a seminary. Um, I worked in an administrative office, did some program stuff too in Los Angeles, actually helped um, a group of churches in Los Angeles um, collaborate. They all had food banks, but they weren't really working together. Right. So I wrote a grant so that they could all get funding for some food, you know, and we, we kind of worked together on that. So I did a number of things. And then when my husband and I were living in Iowa, when he was teaching, I ended up also becoming a pastor mm-hmm. for five years. So I saw a lot of different aspects of the church. Okay. Um, but eventually, I was in an administrative job. Um, and living here in Savannah, it was a job where I could work for the church from home. It was in a, a company called United Methodist Insurance, where they provided property and casualty insurance to local churches, United Methodist churches. And um, anyway, I, I, I sensed that I needed to get out into the community, be around. I was, I was at home. I'm too extroverted for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get out. And so um, I thought I certainly could use my background to help a local nonprofit and saw an ad for a director of finance at Union Mission, and that's how I landed at Union Mission. And I have a feeling you probably knew a little bit about what you were getting into, having worked with nonprofits and and knowing that it's not always rosy, but what did you find when you got there? How much of a challenge awaited you as as a director of finance? Well, I did do quite a bit. I, I, you know, that's one of the the great things about the internet. You can learn a lot. can't always believe everything for you read, but worse. yeah. But I learned a lot, and I, you know, you can anyone can go online and read tax returns for nonprofits. So I, I did that, and I had a sense of that I was getting into something that might be challenging, but I like challenges. So Union Mission has a variety of programs, and each one has its own funding source. So it's no one program is funded exactly as another. Right. So it took three months of six days a week literally to figure out exactly where all the money was coming in from and where all the money was going out to to kind of get a sense of a path forward Mm -hmm. to better financial stability Mm -hmm. so the board had a lot of questions of me as the new director of finance and I had to take a lot of time to get the right answers because I don't I I do my very best to not give out incorrect answers so As you started to look things over, I'm sure you saw some places that needed to be cleaned up, some places that needed to be fixed. But at that point, you're the director of finance. What is your approach in terms of uh, you're talking to the executive director, you're talking to the board? 
are you basically just trying to give them the lay of the land at this point or how are you going about uh, a financial evaluation of, of where you are and, and where it could be? Well, I, I did give them the lay of the land as best as I could see it. Um, I also was working a lot with the program managers to help them get a sense of their part in the financial stability of their program and how that was important Mm -hmm. and that we couldn't continue in a program that we couldn't fund Mm -hmm. i mean it sounds basic enough um, but you know a lot of people don't run their personal finances well so you can't even tell somebody treat it like your own money because maybe they don't treat their own money very well right so (laughs) a pocket full of credit cards that are maxed out yeah so why wouldn't i use the company credit card that's what i do at home right make the minimum payment no that's not how we're gonna do it here (laughs) so um so there is a huge cultural shift you know Um, and union mission's been around 82 years so anytime an organization's been around that long you know Mm -hmm. there's there's just there's a lot in culture that's just unseen right Mm -hmm. i mean you don't know why things are like they are Mm -hmm. but in an you know in an older organization that's kind of the way it is that's maybe the way we've always done it right? yeah yeah Yeah. and um i'm sure you experienced that here Mm -hmm. i mean um so um it was a lot of explaining listening um patience you know and um but really coming to the reality of what our situation was and right. you know kind of what we could do to move forward and maybe things we couldn't do anymore right. and that kind of thing right. then there's a change in leadership and they they look to your to leverage your expertise at least originally in the short term correct correct so um when my predecessor resigned i was asked to be the interim executive director i took it somewhat reluctantly mm-hmm. Um, but I did understand I had a good relationship with the board. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been giving them financial information. I knew they appreciated it, and I thought, well, I guess it's me. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of like being the second chair. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, I'll make you look good. I'll go behind the scenes and just make it all happen for you, you know. Right. <laughs> but there was no person to, you know, that I could do that for. I, I realized it was me. So um, I did take the job, and I was the interim from February of 17, and then they named me permanent executive director in October. October of last year, or yeah, October of 17, 17. Of 2017. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's right. So okay. I was a little reluctant then as well, but... Um, You've grown into it a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I'm much more comfortable in it. Yeah. 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 going to talk more about Union Mission and its work, but let's pause a moment and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah region or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. I think most folks understand what Union Mission is from a 50,000-foot view. If you had to kind of summarize it for the listeners out there that that they, they go by the building, they know that's Union Mission. What would you tell them Union Mission does? And how do you and how do you do it? 
Our new mission statement is to partner with people to end their homelessness through housing and supportive services. So okay. just to unpack that a little bit, mm-hmm. we're partnering with people. So we want to help you, but you want to, you have to want to help yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then we can provide you housing and we can provide you the support. Mm-hmm. We do that in a variety of ways. So what most people think of when they go by our Grace House facility on Farm. That's what they think of as Union Mission. Mm-hmm. Within that building, we have actually three programs. We have an emergency shelter for men for 90 days. We have transitional housing for up to two years. And we have returning citizens or uh, 12 beds for men coming out of the criminal justice system, prison okay. system. Okay. We have a similar facility for emergency services for women with children. We have 20 beds. Mm-hmm. For uh, it's a six-bedroom house, mm-hmm. and uh, so that is another emergency services 90-day program for women with children. We offer all of our programs that I'm going to describe. We offer mental health counseling, mm-hmm. and we also offer mental health counseling to the community at large mm-hmm. on a sliding scale basis. Mm-hmm. So we offer permanent supportive housing, which is housing for formerly homeless people. We have our Dutchtown apartments, 48 units, and then 16 beds um, on the on the east side for 16 formerly homeless women. And then we have a program we don't talk a lot about. It's it's called our Phoenix Project, mm-hmm. and it's special needs housing is what it's called by HUD. It's housing for persons um, with AIDS. For persons. So we have 20 beds on the east side in a congregate facility, and then we have some smaller units, mm-hmm. little bungalows right across the street. They're called the Daniel Flag Villas. Mm-hmm. And then we have what's uh, what is the HUD de- definition is or the HUD terminology is called scattered side apartments, mm-hmm. and we have units from not only in Chatham County but all the way down to the Florida line, okay, and going out to Hinesville, okay. So these folks get these units and then they're subsidized by HUD, and then these people are case managed as well. So they get a visit from their case manager and they get the supportive services they need. Mm-hmm. So that's called the special needs housing. Mm-hmm. So we have all those kind of different pieces to what we do and all these people either were homeless or were on the on verge of homelessness so we were keeping them housed um keeping them stable Mm -hmm. and hopefully you know for some of them have either they're on disability or persons with hiv just have to stay in those kind in our housing but other people move on you know to something else Mm -hmm. so our goal is to get people stable and housed Mm -hmm. you said earlier that that you want to help people but the people have to want to be helped correct how do you what is what is the threshold for that how do you determine that union mission is what's called a clean shelter so people to enter our program have to pass a drug and alcohol screen Mm -hmm. so our folks are in recovery Mm -hmm. um attending AA meetings, et cetera. They have peer counselors. So a part of it is wanting to be clean. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Our case managers, of course, encourage everyone to be employed. And, and again, I mean, if you're thinking we have 70 men in these buildings, we obviously have rules. Mm-hmm. So part of wanting to be helped is to follow the oh, rules. rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we have a curfew. People have chores. you got to get along with your neighbor, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I mean, that's really what I think the criteria is, that you just want to live in community with others Mm -hmm. and 
do what we ask you to do, which is n- nothing unreasonable, right? Right. <laughs> right. Now, I know the recent weeks in the last month or so, you had a big gala fundraiser. You made your your fundraising goal, which was ambitious. You also had a special your keynote speaker was the former mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Richard Berry, who in Albuquerque did a very unique introduced or fostered or started a program that has really made a big dent in homelessness. Can you kind of talk about that gala, uh, having Mr. Barry here? And uh, you were relating earlier how you, it wasn't like he, he called you, you had to track him down. Can you kind of talk about that connection? Okay, so yes, we just did have our fourth annual Raising Hope. Um, we reached our goal of raising a quarter of a million dollars. And so that was um, lots of obvious community support. That's how we raised all that money. So we're appreciative to all of our sponsors. So a part of my goal at Union Mission um, has been to help the community understand the problem of homelessness because we we can all solve a problem we can understand but if the community doesn't understand how people become homeless or why you know why they're homeless or how we can get them out of homelessness we can't solve the problem so the last years that i've been um more involved with our fundraiser i have wanted an educational component to the evening not just have people entertain, which entertainment's nice, yeah. but to have people learn something, either about union mission or about specifically how they can help. Or in this case, we were able to get Mr. Barry, and, mm-hmm. and they could really learn about some of some concrete solutions to homelessness. Well, last after our last fundraiser last May, we got busy to try to think about what we were going to do for next year, which would have been this year. And um, we went on TED Talk and put in homelessness in the search and we ended up with three videos to watch um they were all good but mr barry was the one that really struck us as something that resonated with us and how we could talk about homelessness here in savannah Mm -hmm. so uh one of one a person on my staff literally had to track him down i mean it wasn't like you could google richard barry and it came up i mean he he was really flying under the radar. Right. Um, he called the city of Albuquerque, and they referred him to. I mean, it was right. it wasn't easy, but we found him, right. and <laughs> he um, he was very honored that we asked him. Yeah. And uh, what the great part, which eventually developed, is that um, as a part of this whole educational piece, I asked Mr. Barry if he would do not only the fundraiser but also a couple other events for us, which he graciously agreed to do with no extra cost. Um, So he just came in early and gave his time. One thing I realized in my couple of years of doing this fundraiser was we didn't have a lot of community leaders there. Um, And not only just in uh, Savannah, but in all of Chatham County, right? right? I mean, homelessness is not just affecting Savannah, obviously. So what I had envisioned, which came to fruition and uh, was really a successful event we had an event just for community leaders to kind of have a meet and greet Mm -hmm. so we invited the mayors of all the communities in chatham county all of the city council we invited the county commissioner i mean just anyone like that who probably wouldn't go to our fundraiser right right? but might want to come and meet mr barry and talk about that we sent them all the link to his ted talk i mean we just kind of blitzed everybody with all this information about him and tried to and the i mean the ted talk was very good so it, it could pique people's interest so um 
Hunter McLean was nice, um, gracious enough to sponsor the event, and East End Provisions donated space, and um, we had our event there. Um, and it, it, I invited a hundred people, and we got about a third of that, which is what I was told we would get. Yeah. But we did have leaders of Savannah Aldermen and so forth, and uh, it, w- it was good. It was a good event. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, that Barry was under the radar because I was at the uh, the Raising Hope Gala, and he is charismatic inspirational you walk out of there thinking man we could we could do this yeah yeah we could do this and uh, i i find it uh find it kind of funny that that he is keeping somewhat of a low profile but when called he yeah. turns it on yeah and he so he reduced um chronic homelessness in albuquerque by 40 percent and overall homelessness by 80 percent yeah and he did in it a couple through, of years yeah yeah like well he years. was mayor eight years yeah, yeah, I don't think he did it for eight years. Though. It was it was a, a phenomenal number in a very short period of time. Right, and I'm and I'm not sure quite what it was. Either. He did he experienced enormous success because it's what he put his attention to. Like right. anything, when we put our attention to something, we yeah. can get we could be successful at it. Right. Right. And he had two programs. One called "There's a Better Way," where he hired basically panhandlers, um, assuming that they're homeless, but people on the streets to work for the city of Albuquerque mm-hmm. through the help of a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also has had a program called um, Albuquerque Heading Home, mm-hmm. where he obtained permanent supportive housing for the city of Albuquerque, mm-hmm. and um, was able to house a great number of people. Right. Right. Um, and let's. Let's let's talk a little bit about that permanent supportive housing because the people that were going in there are the ones that are the most difficult to – these aren't the people that are – you're going to give them a leg up and they're going to go out in the workforce and, and prosper. These are the people that have mental illness, other disabilities that are chronically homeless, which I think you defined earlier as – 12, 12 out of the last 36 months on the street? Correct, plus a physical or mental disability. Okay. <clears throat> so the people that one would typically see on our squares in Savannah or then in, in the camps are the chronically homeless. And there is a lot of um, mental disability there, right? right? Um, people get off their meds and then they just don't want to come in. And, you know, many people that live on the camps, in the camps, that's their choice mm-hmm. that they make. So... Um, HUD has done a lot of studying on this and has determined the path to success is to house the most difficult people first. And although that does seem chronic, that does seem counterintuitive, it it's actually what works. So we don't say to somebody, you got to get off drugs or you got to get a job, or you got to do this. They call it barriers, right? Yeah, before you, before we before do anything. We, before we'll give you a place to live, you house them and support them through mental health counseling, you know, the, the case management. Mm-hmm. You house them and support them and they will improve and often thrive. Mm-hmm. And then those people, of course, are not on the streets yeah. because some folks that don't have those issues through other means of support can get back into a regular place, right? right? Right. But these people with these disabilities and not much income just can't get there. So um, Union Mission does have permanent supportive housing. We have our Dutchtown apartments down on Middle Ground Road, 48 units. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to say we... Right now, we have 32 children down at Dutchtown. Mm-hmm. So these are folks that really struggle. Mm-hmm. And so we have a full-time case manager there. We, of course, it's, you know, we have a property manager there. Our housing manager 
has to spend quite a bit of her time there because these are people with needs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those people are housed. Um, And they're the people that are most costly for them to live on the street, which I don't think a lot of people understand how much it costs for some of these, to serve some of these people that live on the street. Right. I mean, one of the things that Mr. Berry talked about that evening, and it would be very advantageous for us to look at it here as a community in Savannah, is to just how much we are spending on homeless people in the emergency room and in the jail and i know sheriff wiltshire would be happy to share that data with you because he knows what it is there's we we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars that we could be diverting to housing people and of course our community would be better the people would be better served and um it would it would it's just a much better solution that's what mr barry discovered in albuquerque and that's that's why hud is offering that as the best path forward because Mm -hmm. that is where the communities are saving tremendous amount of money i know through the i just read the article on the groundbreaking for the gateway facility and that's headed in that same direction right of getting people out of the emergency room and into a place where they can get some help that is less costly and actually more directed to the kind of help they need Mm-hmm. Then in there, and then somebody comes in from a car accident, and they kind of get shoved aside, and mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, beyond the gala and what we learned from Mr. Barry, I, I know that Union Mission has got some initiatives and some other successes going. I, I believe earlier you said a seat on the Homeless Authority board has been very advantageous, and you've got a new program that you would like to go ahead and expand and go into. Uh, to add to what you have existing, right? Right. One of the things, <clears throat> I guess, as a part of the whole education piece and being a part of the conversation was um, I talked with um, Cindy Kelly, who's the executive director of the, home, the Homeless Authority, and uh, requested a service provider seat for someone from Union Mission. Um, I have someone on my staff, actually, that's very well-versed in the HUD initiatives and, and that kind of thing. So, um, so that's been helpful in the conversation around the city and the county to be able to um, kind of work together more to um, educate again educate the community and get get us focused as uh, service providers you know working together mm-hmm. and that's been a bit of a weakness right it is you, you said earlier that helping the homeless is a three-legged stool it involves the community it involves uh, government and it involves the service providers do you get the sense, and I know that the, the disconnect between those three, uh, you don't have to say it, I'll say it, is has been just egregious here for a long, long time. Do you get the sense now that, that maybe everybody's starting to coalesce around and starting to get it going forward? I do think so. I mean, we're, there's a lot more conversation. Um, I think that there are there are new people on her board that I think are adding to the conversation. And um, I do think we're, we're, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a long time to turn around an ocean liner. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it can happen. I do think we're going in the right direction and, you know, we're working better together. Right. So one of my hopes... Um, um, as we stabilize financially at Union Mission, um, one of my hopes is to have a facility for what the terminology is unaccompanied women. So okay. we have a facility for women with children, right. but no facility for just women in mm-hmm. Savannah. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something that we're looking at. Right now it's a dream, but we have a foundation, a, a local foundation that's interested in helping us with that. Mm-hmm. And so, and I know the community is very generous and could would get behind something like that. So it's out there on our 
It's in our conversation and on our horizon. Right. Nothing definite yet. How prevalent is that uh, in compared to unaccompanied men? I mean, is there significantly <clears throat> fewer women than men that are, that are living on the street? I, I believe that there are slightly less women, but <clears throat> just our facility is an example, but it's it, there are, we have so many more beds for men. Mm-hmm. And here in Savannah, there are, you know, between Salvation Army, Old Savannah City Mission, I mean, it's all beds for men mm-hmm. because it used to be so many more men than women. But the, right. the, the fastest growing number is women and women with children mm-hmm. of, of the homeless. Yeah. So there is a real need for women, right. for a place for women. Right. Let's wrap up the conversation and talk more theoretical. And uh, before we came on the air, I talking to you a lot about homelessness and homelessness really comes down to the the home part of it and having homes and you related that the the stereotype of the homeless does not necessarily match reality how what is homelessness and and how close are a lot of people to homelessness right i mentioned that the stereotype is that somebody that's homeless is somebody who has a drug or alcohol problem and people say oh if they just get a job you know they just get back on their feet and what's wrong with them but there are many many things that cause homelessness and there are thousands of people right here in savannah that are not very far away from being homeless yeah a paycheck Uh, away a a paycheck yes and um you know and it can happen to anybody you know a couple you know two people working in the family somebody gets sick somebody's taking Taking time off to take them to doctor's appointments, they lose their job, you know, car breaks. I mean, just anything can happen, and all of a sudden these people find themselves homeless. Yeah, they can't pay the rent. And, right, yeah. and they're in their car, and they don't know where to go or what to do. Right. Um, so it's there's, and it's never just one thing that causes someone to be homeless. It's it's usually a it, it's it's always a combination of a lot of events. Mm-hmm divorce i mean just a number any it can be it can be anything um and people just fall on hard times yeah. and uh yeah so it can have it really can happen to anyone yeah we have a dearth of affordable housing or workforce housing or however you want to put it in this town right what is that maybe one of the bigger hurdles around here yeah um again um of course to end homelessness people need homes Mm -hmm. and they're these social issues are very tied together i mean being poor isn't necessarily being homeless but there are many of the same issues Mm -hmm. when you have two people have to work full-time jobs to just have a small apartment and then we've got latchkey kids who are getting in trouble on everything and then again one of those persons loses their job and then they can all become homeless um it affects many you know hundreds of children in chatham county um so the city has to recognize their part in being a part of the solution Mm -hmm. whether it's when a developer wants to build housing apartments that they have to put aside so many certain percentage certain percentage uh to be affordable Mm -hmm. um or you know maybe these blighted properties within savannah coming up to a solution with that i mean you know union mission would be able to certainly support with our supportive services people that was in were in that housing yeah so that not only would help the neighborhoods that the blighted homes are in right to have these homes fixed up and have families living with them there would be places for folks to live yeah 
Um, but they have to come to terms with the fact that this is an issue that needs to be addressed because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. otherwise people can't live way down on the south side and try to commute in downtown. I mean, that's that's not real because transportation is a huge issue for yeah. people. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing is you got to have this housing in a lot of different areas and they all have to be accessible to, to public transit, Right. quite frankly. Yeah. Thanks one more time to Union Missions' Patricia Youngquist for sharing her insights on today's Difference Makers. We also appreciate our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority, a difference-making group in our community. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as U.S. Congressman Buddy Carter, James Beard award-winning chef Mashama Bailey, and Savannah Bananas owners Jesse and Emily Cole. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening.